Hello, and welcome to Plot Mechanics. I'm your host, Steve Voitage. Look at that, new theme music. Uh, it's made especially for this show by Fifth Sequence and DJ Outclass. You can find more of his music at soundcloud.com slash fifthsequence. I'll uh, also put a link in the episode description. We're also now on Google Play, so if you have an Android phone, you can subscribe that way. Let's get right to it. Today we're looking at one of my favorite franchises, one that I grew up with. I am better. At what? Everything. Star Trek Into Darkness. Now for our quick recap. Teaser where Enterprise saves a planet. Spock almost dies, but Kirk saves it, revealing a starship to a primitive alien species. Kirk loses his command for it, but gets it back right away when his father figure and the top Starfleet brass are killed by a guy we're all supposed to pretend is not Khan. They're sent to the Klingon homeworld with a bunch of torpedoes to take out not Khan by Admiral Robocop, which Scotty quits over. Kirk captures not Khan instead of killing him. After not Khan takes out about 30 pretty blue-eyed Klingons. Not Khan reveals himself as Khan so we can all stop pretending. He gives Kirk coordinates and tells him there's something special in those torpedoes. Scotty goes to Kamino and finds that the Empire's creating a clone army. We find out Admiral Robocop got Khan and his race of supermen out of hibernation to help him create weapons, one of which Admiral Robocop shows up with and starts kicking the crap out of the Enterprise. With Khan's help, they defeat Admiral Robocop. They turn on Khan. Khan turns on them. Kirk dies, saving the Enterprise. Spock defeats Khan, and Kirk is brought back to life by Khan's magic blood. At the end of the second freaking movie, we are finally going to explore space. Maybe. This film sits at a much too good 87%. The critics' consensus says, Visually spectacular and suitably action-packed, Star Trek in a Darkness is a rock-solid installment in the venerable sci-fi franchise, even if it's not as fresh as its predecessor. And I couldn't possibly disagree more. On the surface, it appears to me to be a film made by non-Star Trek fans, reviewed by non-Star Trek fans, that is loud and fast and pretty enough to distract them from all the problems. Now, I am a Star Trek fan, and that's certainly going to color my watching. But hopefully, I'll back up my points enough that there will still be some middle ground between me and those people less enamored with the universe. Buckle up. Problem number one. Exploration and discovery. Star Trek and Star Wars, in my mind, and I think to a lot of people's minds, will always be linked. They both have star in the title. One dominates the small screen, the other big one, though lately they've moved back and forth. I think people generally gravitate towards one or the other, including the makers of this film. They're Star Wars people, who by all accounts made a really good new Star Wars film. I say by all accounts because I haven't seen it yet. I don't really care all that much about Star Wars. I'm a Star Trek guy. And I think the main reason that is, is because I have a particular love of discovery in stories. And that's where Star Wars and Star Trek really diverge. Star Wars is a myth. It's fantasy. Yes, it takes place in space with spaceships and lasers, but they're old ships and lasers. They break down a lot. They're pieces of junk. They're as boring as microwave ovens are to us. The universe has been explored. Nothing's new. It's so not new, there are rules for the strangest possible creatures in backwater bars. Not only are we not surprised by your kind, we also don't serve your kind here. And that works really great for Star Wars. You get to jump into a galaxy far, far away from your life. But Star Trek, at least the ethos of its origins, is about us. About our world, about our humanity, and what we hope to become as time marches on. And as we chart brand new worlds, seek out new civilizations, the characters also explore what it means to be human. There's always been an almost human character that wants to be more human. Spock in the original, Data in the next generation, Odo in DS9, Seven of Nine in Voyager, and each race is a distillation of one of our qualities or emotions. Beta Zeds are empathy, Klingons are rage and aggression, Romulans are underhandedness, Ferengi are greed, and so on. And it's the discovery in a new, unexplored universe that shows pieces of ourselves in sharper relief. 
Now, I understand that this property, a franchise that's now existed for 50 years now, in a lot of aspects, the universe has become solidified. But this movie series, quite literally, blows up the past. I thought the whole point with the last movie was to start the series fresh. That first movie spent a lot of time getting Kirk into the captain's chair. Not getting very far. I get it, it's not my particular cup of tea, but that's fine for a setup for a first film. I assumed by the second film, we'd be off exploring space. A five-year mission, Spock! That's deep space! That's uncharted territory! Think how incredible that's gonna be! So why aren't we there already? Do you know when we actually do start exploring deep space? This is at the end of the movie, two hours and two minutes in. Mr. Sulu, take us out. Hi, Captain. We're two movies in, almost five hours of story, and Star Trek, a series based on space exploration, hasn't done any exploring. We start the film by taking two steps back, because of what Kirk did on the planet by saving Spock and having the primitive race see him, they... They've taken the Enterprise away from you. They're sending you back to the Academy. We go back to Kirk drinking in the bar. How did you find me? I know you better than you think I do. I mean, the first time I found it was in a dive like this. So, who watches Star Trek and goes, I wish they'd go on fewer adventures and just, you know, be fired so I can watch them wallow? Absolutely nothing comes of this plot point, by the way. Pike, that guy you heard talking, is killed pretty soon after Kirk gets his command back. We start the film off with a really exciting set piece on an unknown planet trying to save a new race. That should be the heart of a space exploration adventure, not just the teaser. Is that what we are now? Because I thought we were explorers. So did I. Problem number two. You're in the military. Act like it. Emotion is a tricky thing. When I talk to people about acting who don't act, emotion is one of the first things they focus on. What's acting about to them? How well you portray emotion. And it's not that there isn't some truth in that, but it's missing a huge piece. Traditional acting training focuses on objectives, on having the character want something, and then the lines they speak or the actions they take move them towards achieving that goal. Where does emotion come in? Well, a lot of the time, certainly not all, emotion should be the result of either achieving what you want or not achieving it. So let's look at this scene. So this is Carol Marcus, the daughter of evil Admiral Robocop, Admiral Marcus. He's about to attack the Enterprise, and he doesn't know his daughter's on board. And here's how that scene goes. What are you doing on that ship? I heard what you said. You made a mistake, and now you're doing everything you can to fix it. But Dad... I, I don't believe that the man who raised me is capable of destroying a ship full of innocent people. And if I'm wrong about that, then you're going to have to do it with me on board. Do you know what the most important emotion in a movie is? Yours. The audience's. It was one of my favorite things my voice teacher in grad school ever said to me. To a group of emotional, sensitive actors, she said, I don't care how you feel. Of course, that's a hard thing for an actor to hear, but it's true. She meant that it's your job, as an actor, to produce an emotion in the audience. Your emotion only matters as an actor if it leads to the audience feeling something. And that's true of directors and writers and everyone involved in making stories. The reason this scene falls flat is because she's already given up. 
If she really believes that her father wouldn't do it, wouldn't kill her, then why is she crying? She would yell at her father, this is not who you are, this is not what you stand for. But here, she's weepy, and in that emotion, she loses her objective, which is to stop her father from destroying Kirk's ship. This movie goes to this well repeatedly. The number of times CG moisture falls out of somebody's face comes in at no less than six times. But it's soulless, because these things didn't affect me as much as they did the characters, because they weren't born out of the characters trying to accomplish something. And it weakens them. This is a military operation. There are plenty of great stories that rely on main characters questioning themselves. Are they up to the task? Can we do this? Star Trek is not one of those stories. We want capable people, fighting against the odds, questioning the right way to solve a problem, not questioning whether they're up to the task. When Kirk has to leave the captain's chair, which by the way he just got back like 10 minutes before, he puts Sulu in charge. We get this little exchange. Is that a problem? No sir. I've just never sat in the chair before. You're gonna do great. Do your job, son. All that emotion isn't earned and it doesn't lead anywhere. Could you imagine having that moment with a boss that just gave you an important assignment? Your job would involve making that person in charge feel good about putting you in charge, not that you can't handle the moment that it's too much for you to take. So right after that, we have a scene where an away team of Kirk, Spock, and Uhura are in a shuttle together, and they have some time to hash things out. And Uhura, who is dating Spock, they're having a fight. Wait, are you guys, are you guys fighting? I'd rather not talk oh about it. Oh my god, what is that even like? And Uhura now talks about the reason on this trip. While on the planet in the opening, Spock was willing to sacrifice himself to save a dying planet. He was saved when Kirk broke the rules and revealed himself to this primitive species so that he could beam Spock aboard. We'll get to that conflict later. I'm sorry, Captain. Just two seconds. Okay. Is us. At that volcano, you didn't give a thought to us. What it would do to me if you died, Spock. You didn't feel anything. You didn't care. That's a really strange argument in this film. This honestly feels like a writer, someone who doesn't know or care about Star Trek, working through the character. Wait, does Spock not feel anything? Uhura would of course know the answer to this. She's in a relationship with him. Vulcans feel very deeply and strongly. Logic and a lack of emotion is a choice. It's also a very strange thing to say to a fellow military officer. I can't imagine a soldier questioning the possible sacrificing of his life for the good of the mission to save an entire planet and suspect that was done out of indifference. The whole point of service is putting a greater goal ahead of your own personal desires or safety. Another moment when Kirk and Scotty are fighting about whether they're going to bring the top secret torpedoes on board the Enterprise, Scotty... Right, well, you leave me no choice but to resign my duties. Oh, come on, Scotty. You're giving me no choice, sir. You're not giving me I will much much choice. Do you accept sign? my resignation or not? I do! And it feels weird. And the only reason it happens is so that Scotty can go find the secret shipbuilding facility and board the illegal Federation warship and become kind of a deus ex machina. The emotion in this scene is ramped up so high and the discipline of the characters is removed to serve a plot point that's an hour away. It feels mechanic-y in the worst way. Part of the joy of Star Trek is watching highly capable people handle dramatic situations. All this emotion undercuts that competence. You would think that it would add to it, but it actually robs me of my ability to feel for these characters. Conflicts, devoid of logic, don't earn that emotion. Problem number three, the science part of the fiction. So again, in Star Wars, the technology doesn't matter. 
No one asks, except a few superfans, how this ragtag rebellion was able to design ships that are completely different from the Empire's, but still stay pretty much even with them when it comes to technology. But again, it's fantasy. It's a long time ago, far, far away. They're still using swords and knights. The technology to travel around space has been around forever, and it will continue to be around forever. In fact, when you add in technological details, <coughs> midichlorians, <coughs> Finding out why the Force works in a fantasy story like Star Wars robs you of the magic that makes that world so wonderful to visit. But Star Trek is science fiction. It's an exploration of what would happen to us if we got this piece of technology or that, and what it would mean for us as people and a society. It's part of the craft of the fiction, to imagine what we would do if we met another species, could travel to distant places, or teleport ourselves. As a storyteller, you have to imagine and construct a true-seeming human response to technological changes. Now, you can be totally wrong. I still don't have my flying car, and hoverboards are death traps that explode, and that will in no way help you escape from a bully. Here's an example from Star Trek Into Darkness. The first part of this scene is an example of good science fiction-y technobabble. When Kirk is ordered to take on board special torpedoes that are going to be used to take out Notcon, Scotty has a problem with it. I need you to approve those weapons. Do you know what this is, Captain? I don't have time for a lecture, Scotty. Do you know what this is? It's a warp core. It's a radioactive catastrophe waiting to happen. A subtle shift in magnetic output from, say, firing one or more of six dozen torpedoes with an unknown payload could set off a chain reaction which would kill every living thing on this ship. That's great. It's based on his character, his expertise, stuff that sounds right to me, even though I have no knowledge if any of that has any reason to be true, but it's all there. Now here's the second part of that conversation. Laying those torpedoes on board the Enterprise is the last straw. What was the first straw? What was the... There are plenty of straws. How about Starfleet confiscating my transwarp equation, and now some madman's using it to hop across the galaxy? Where'd you think he got it from? Our orders, Scotty. That's what first of all, me. how do you confiscate an equation? That makes no sense. Second of all, it works. Notcon is traveling around the galaxy without a ship. That's amazing. That changes the rules of the universe. Starships are immediately obsolete. It doesn't get to be a throwaway line that's not honoring the science that should be in your fiction, or the imagination that is owed to the creation of the world we're exploring. This problem extends to the extremely awkward plot twisting that needs to happen to kill Kirk and then immediately bring him back to life. Bones, what are you doing with that Tribble? The Tribble's dead. I'm injecting Khan's platelets into the deceased tissue of the necrotic host. Con cells regenerate like nothing I've ever seen, and I want to know why. I mean, they're in the middle of this crisis. They're being attacked. That seems like a really odd time to be working on it, but... Oh, don't be so melodramatic. You were barely dead. It was the transfusion that really took its toll. You were out cold for two weeks. Transfusion? Your cells were heavily irradiated. We had no choice. Con. Once we caught him, I synthesized the serum from his super blood. Tell me, are you feeling a uh, homicidal, power man, despotic? No more than usual. Um, yeah, now you've just invented immortality. That's not okay. In good science fiction, if you introduce something, you have to honor what effect that would have in your world that you created. Problem number four, borrowing from history. This film is obviously a remake of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. I know they tried to hide the identity of Benedict Cumberbatch's character, but everyone knew that not Khan was Khan. Everyone. 
After leaving the theater disappointed by this film, I brought my girlfriend home, an avowed non-nerd and complete non-Star Trek fan, going so far as to be the girlfriend cliche where she confuses Star Wars and Star Trek all the time, and she really enjoyed Star Trek too. She was like, oh yeah, that is a much better movie. Now there's lots of reasons why that is, but the one reason I want to talk about is when you invest time into something, a character or a world, you get to borrow against it, almost like you're borrowing against your house when you've built up enough equity. What am I talking about? Well, when Spock dies in Star Trek II, that is a moment. The first episode aired in 1966, and he dies in 1982. 16 years of real-world time, three years of TV episodes, and two feature films worth of history. They killed a beloved main character, and they left the movie with him being dead. That's amazing. This movie truncates it all, mixing in details in a way that's meant to be an homage, but ends up being much closer to a parody. When Kirk loses his command in the beginning of this film, it doesn't mean anything. It's not like our old Kirk in the 1980s, who had all this history behind him. This Kirk just got his ship. It's not dramatic, it's laughable. Sulu with the captain's chair. Who are you again? Kirk dies and Spock yells, I laughed out loud because it's all so new. Just like with the emotion, you have to earn it. And to earn it, you have to give us time with the characters. Let us watch them solve problems before we deconstruct them. To take the plot points from the movies from the 80s that worked so well because of that history and try and play them as your own just makes you a crappy cover band. You're playing the notes, but they don't have any soul to them. Problem number five, split antagonists. So this last point will be a quick one. There are two main antagonists in this movie, Khan Na Khan and the evil Admiral Marcus, i.e. Admiral Robocop. Na Khan is the antagonist in the first half of the film, then the Admiral then takes over, which causes Kirk and Khan to join forces. They then defeat the Admiral, and Khan takes over as the antagonist again. Now, the way I just described it on paper, it sounds like that could kind of work. Oh, these two people that were fighting now have to join forces. But the way it's handled in this movie, the antagonists don't dovetail, they actually just switch places, and Khan gets added to Kirk. So instead of the Admiral being this overwhelming force that the Enterprise has to overcome, they have Khan's help, so it lessens the stakes. Unlike in Star Trek II, where Khan as Captain Ahab and the Enterprise as the Whale works wonders, it's just one antagonist, one protagonist. One quick example, when Spock yells, It makes no sense. Do you know why Kirk died? Because Admiral Robocop crippled the Enterprise, and Kirk had to brave the radiation leak to save his ship. Spock should be yelling, Admiral Mark! But that's obviously not as effective or an homage to the original movie. The Center this is a Star Trek movie. It's about a group of diverse, well-meaning, overall good military officers tackling problems that crop up in their explorations of space. So what are we keeping? While all the characters will be pretty much the same, except we're losing Carol Marcus and replacing her with someone else. Let's keep Khan as the bad guy, and we'll add into that that we have to get back to Earth to topple buildings. It feels like there was a directive by the studio, afraid that if it all took place in deep space, the average moviegoer wouldn't care, that it has to be centered around Earth, and you have to destroy buildings. We'll keep that as a challenge in our fix. 
Also, that great action scene where Kirk and Khan have to launch themselves as human torpedoes to get to the ship is going to stay, just tweaked a little bit. Act 1. So as I mentioned in Problem 4, this is a remake of Wrath of Khan, and a far inferior one for all the reasons I outlined. And that's the dangerous part with remakes. You run the risk of making something far worse than the great original. But do you know what could use a remake? The original TV episode where they first encounter Khan, the 1967 episode Space Seed. I watched that episode in preparation for this podcast, and let me tell you, it has not aged well. Not only the effects, but the pacing. Ricardo Montalban is awesome, but HD is not kind to the way they film Shatner and Montalban's stunt doubles. It's clearly not them, and the punches do not land. Now that is something modern films do much better. So let's put a modern spin on that story, where they first meet Khan, learn about who he is, and try and prevent him from taking over the Enterprise. So we start our film the same way that it was in Star Trek Into Darkness, with Spock trying to deliver a bomb into a volcano that will save the planet and a primitive species from extinction. Also, with Kirk swooping in and saving him. But this time, we're not going to have any hand-wringing over whether a trained military officer would sacrifice himself for a mission. Of course he would. Instead, we're going to focus on this conflict. Spock, nobody knows the rules better than you, but there has got to be an exception. None. Such action violates the Prime Directive. They're in deep space, encountering things that have never been seen before. Following the rules is important, but it's their job to make the rules for others to follow. They're the first ones to see things like this. All these new situations are going to need both logic and improv. Spock and Kirk. So that mission happens. They escape the planet with the primitive species seeing them. They file their report. There might be inquiry, but they're going to have to wait until their next dock, since they're far out in unknown space, which, by the way, heightens the stakes. There's no one out there to help them. No one in space can hear you scream. They receive their next mission. There's a strange distress call coming from a nebula. The sequence where they enter the nebula will have this feeling. Two, three, one, seven, four, six, one, one. Coordinates not far from Earth. If you want to know why I did what I did, go and take a look. Give me one reason why I should listen to you. I can give you 72. And they're on board your ship, Captain. They have been all along. I really enjoyed that moment in Star Trek Into Darkness. Not too much emotion, not too much talking, just a sense of mystery. What is this all about? Which should happen when you're exploring? They discover this derelict ship being attacked by space creatures that live in the nebula. Huge mouths, no eyes, or if that's too crazy, they can be rescued from a planet from the indigenous creatures that attack them. They find people aboard. They're not in stasis, but awake. They say they are a different race who would like to make contact with Earth. Khan introduces himself as Khan. We can know who he is, but there's still drama in watching our heroes figure it out. We're also going to replace the Carol Marcus character with a female version of Khan. In Space Seed, in the original episode, a member of Kirk's crew falls in love with Khan, and that's how Khan is able to gain control of the ship. Here, we're going to have a member of Khan's crew act as a love interest for Kirk. Let's call her Meryl. There are a few other supermen that flesh out the characters. Some are left on the ship, but Khan and Meryl go aboard the Enterprise. Uhura listens to their dialects. Something's wrong. They're speaking another language, and the translator is translating... But the soul isn't there, almost like they made up the language. She expresses these concerns to Spock, but no conclusion is reached between them. Act 1 ends with them making their way towards Earth, hoping to introduce a new species, but with a feeling that something strange is going on. 
Act 2. Act 2 begins with the Enterprise and Khan's ship being attacked by Klingons. The Enterprise can attack, but they can't let the ship be destroyed. We have cat and mouse between them and the Klingons. We see the super race show how capable they are. We have further distrust. Kirk and Merrill really start falling for each other. And the crew starts becoming really suspicious, all linked with their expertise. Scotty because of his engineering, Bones because of his medical expertise, maybe Sulu sword fights one and notices certain techniques from Earth, etc. They escape the Klingons, and when that problem is ended, Merrill comes to Kirk and says, I have to tell you something. She's going to tell him that she wants to join their side, and that's when Khan makes his play. He takes over the Enterprise, and we learn his people's history. They were engineered by humans to rule, and they wanted to use the Enterprise as a Trojan horse. But they could tell the crew was figuring them out, because they're superior. They are now bringing this danger back home. Act 3 The crew now has to work to get the Enterprise back, and Merrill helps. They reach Earth. As they do, the ship that they were escorting, Khan's ship, grows through nanotechnology or some other means, becoming a behemoth warship. With Merrill's help and the expertise of the Enterprise crew, they're able to take back the Enterprise. Khan escapes to a ship. Khan's super ship and the Enterprise begin to battle. Kirk and the rest of the crew are forced to evacuate the bridge. That's when Merrill makes her play. She doesn't want to be Khan's queen or Kirk's girlfriend. She wants to rule. Sorry, Kirk. You were fun, but I have far larger plans. But as she tries to take control of the bridge, she finds that it will only respond to a language she doesn't know. A little present from Uhura. So this has been the other thread that's been running through our story. There's the rules versus improv, making it up as you go along. Then there's also the powerful but arrogant individualistic strength that the super people have versus the greater than the sum of their parts expertise of the crew, Uhura's language skills. You brought me here because I speak Klingon. Then let me speak Klingon. Scotty's engineering, Spock's science, Kirk's leadership, Sulu's piloting, etc., this is why they're able to defeat the Supermen. Spock and Kirk launch themselves like torpedoes towards Khan's ship. We're keeping that awesome sequence, but swapping out Khan for Spock, and furthering that logic versus improv conflict. Their targeting systems fail, which Spock designed, and then they have to feel it out. That's Kirk's domain. They disable Khan's ship with Scotty's guidance, just after Khan's ship crippled the Enterprise. Both ships hurtle towards Earth. Buildings are destroyed, fists are thrown, and the supermen are defeated with the competence and expertise from the Enterprise crew. They followed the rules when they helped, and they made them up as they went along when they didn't. The crucible of exploration has started making them stronger, and able to tackle any challenge. Kirk's transgression in the beginning is forgiven since he saved Earth, and the crew has a greater appreciation for each other's strengths. They head back out to space, victorious, ready for the next adventure. So in all honesty, I would prefer to make tweaks to existing movies, but as I watched and re-watched this film as I was preparing for this podcast, there was just too much that bugged me, so this is kind of a completely different film. But hopefully I kept the spirit of both what the series should be and what Star Trek Into Darkness was trying to accomplish. Except for one thing, what I think the name was about... Starfleet becoming as problematic as our current government institutions was something that was earned over the course of 30 years. Star Trek should be hopeful, so you don't get to start with that. Anyway, thanks for listening. Sharing and reviewing is always much appreciated. The music, again, is by Fifth Sequence and DJ Outclass. More great tracks by Fifth Sequence at soundcloud.com slash fifth sequence. Till next time.